Well, good morning. I know that most people who have spent any time around me at all know that I'm one of those people who has the disability, and that disability is that there are sounds that bother me, that annoy me. Things like chewing of popcorn in movie theaters, um, things like clicking of pens during a church service, like the pens you have in your hand right now. Um, everybody on our student team likes to joke around about it. They like to give me a difficult time about that because they know that if they're chewing their food while we're having a conversation, it just kind of starts to eat at me. It starts to drive me a little bit crazy. And you may not be like that, but I know that there is a sound that all of us feel the same towards, and it's that sound that's kind of like the chirp. You know what I'm talking about? The chirp, and then it's silent. One little chirp, and it never happens during the day. I mean, can we not make smoke detectors in 2018 that can at least know that the batteries are gonna die that night so that we have a little bit of a prior um, knowledge of that so that we can make appropriate plans? It never works out that way, though. It's always in the deepest sleep, in the middle of your REM sleep. You are having the best dream, and then all of a sudden you hear the chirp. And the first thing you do is what I do, is you just say, God, just make it go away. Just make it stop. That was part of my dream, right? God, this isn't really happening. And you lay there and you think, okay, I think we're good. Close your eyes. <laughs> Chirp. And you're like, oh gosh. And so then you start to game plan. You're like, I don't even know where it's coming from. I just know it's in my house. And so then you gotta start narrowing it down to which smoke detector in the house is losing battery power. And so you get up, middle of the night, you're a little bit foggy, a little disoriented, you start walking around, you're kinda just staring at the ceiling, just wandering, just wandering, waiting for that sound. And then you hear it again, you're like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm narrowed it down. And so you, you figure out where you think it's coming from and then you get down and you, you're like, man, if you're like me, I gotta get a stool to get, because it's always the one that's the least convenient to reach. And so I get a stool, I'm on that stool and about that time my wife wakes up, she gets out of bed, she walks into the room and she sees me ridiculously standing on a stool in my underwear, staring at the ceiling, just waiting. <laughs> and she's like, what in the world are you doing? I'm like, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, you're gonna miss it. And it's like, I found it, I found it. And then it's, it's not over, the struggle's not over. Because then you gotta find a battery. And you never have the battery you need for the smoke detector that's losing power. And so what do you do? Go to the toy box, start looking through the kids' toys, start trying to find anything that has that battery so you can finally get that battery replaced and get back to sleep. And finally, eventually, you get back in bed, you lay down, your heart's a little bit, heart rate's a little elevated than it needs to be at that time of the night, and you're just kinda like, man, that was, that was crazy. And then your mind begins to wonder. At least my mind begins to wonder, and maybe I have issues, and that's been said before, and I probably would agree. But your mind begins to wonder, my mind begins to wonder, and I begin to think, what if there really was a fire? What would happen if the smoke detectors didn't actually work? I begin to think about my kids in their bedroom, they're upstairs as far away from me as they could be in my house, and I'm like, man, if there really was a fire, this would be devastating, because I'm not sure that I can safely get to my kids, I'm not sure that I can adequately protect my kids, and I just start having all this doubt, and I just become incredibly overwhelmed in that moment, thinking my safety is not what it needs to be. My ability to protect is not what it needs to be. This is a devastating situation. And then by the end of it, I'm thinking, man, we're just doomed. Become incredibly overwhelmed. 
Now that's a little bit of a ridiculous story and you're like, Wes, you've got, yeah, you've got some ridiculous issues and I, I, I'm working through that. But isn't life like that sometimes? Life's going great, everything's good. And then bam, something changes and in an instant, something unexpected happens and we immediately find ourselves in a place where we're incredibly overwhelmed, incredibly disappointed, frustrated and our mind begins to wonder. I mean, maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's been a situation where something unexpected happened. There was a, a friendship that was destroyed because of a, a breach of trust. Maybe, maybe it was the loss of a job. Maybe it was the news of a terrible diagnosis for you or for somebody really close to you. Maybe you're walking through a season where a kid or somebody close to you in your family has just decided to kind of walk away and they're living life in a way that they think is best for them and you see the destruction that's taking place as a result of their actions and you're just wishing you could do something to fix the situation and it's incredibly overwhelming. Maybe for you it's some of the pain or regret that you're dealing with from something in your past and it just overwhelms your thought process day after day after day. Maybe you watch the news and, and it just takes five minutes of watching the news and you become overwhelmed about the world that we live in and the brokenness and the, the destruction and the disappointment that happens every single day. And it leads us to this place where we're incredibly overwhelmed, we become incredibly disappointed. And a lot of times it leads us to this place where we begin to think, if God is so good, why is this happening? If God is so great and God has such great plans for me and my family and those that he loves, why am I dealing with what I'm dealing with? Why am I having to walk through with this? Why are the people that I love having to walk through this particular situation? And then you show up in a place like this on a Sunday morning and you begin to think, I hear everything he's saying. I hear everything that they said last week. I hear everything that they said the week before that. I hear all that. I'm just not sure that I can believe it because life's just not good. Or maybe you begin to hear about God being the healer and you need healing and it's not happening the way that you need it to happen or you feel like it's supposed to happen and so you begin to doubt God's goodness. You begin to doubt God's ability to heal. Or maybe you need God to provide and you hear people talk about being God being the provider but he's not providing for you the way you feel like he needs to be providing for you and it's overwhelming, it's discouraging, it's disappointing. You know, I can do all things through Christ until my life goes in a direction I never intended it to go. And then I begin to question, am I really able to do that? And is God able to do what I need him to do in this situation? And it causes us to ask the question, if God is so good, why is this happening in my life? And I know for some in that situation, in that moment, in that reality, we begin to question and we begin to feel a little bit guilty. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe your parents were devout um, every single time the church doors were open. You were there with them. And so you immediately begin to feel, feel this guilt because you're questioning the goodness of God. And you think, man, I can't do that. Like, it's God. I can't question God. And you feel this guilty um, idea and this guilty conscience because of it. But I want to give you a little bit of encouragement this morning that I believe that the question is incredibly helpful. I believe it's okay. I believe that God's word, that God's um, characteristics, everything about him is able to stand up against our doubts. But I also believe that our doubt is helpful, that it's healthy. Because without doubt, there really can't be faith. And so the idea I want us to concentrate on this morning as we dive into a passage in John chapter 11 is this idea that, that God is good. Even when life disappoints me, even when I feel like God has disappointed me, God is good and I can trust him. And because God is good, 
and because I can trust him, then I believe this is true, and I think we see this in the story this morning. If it's not good, God's not done. If it's not good, God's not done. And, and I've left a blank page for you to take notes on, to write things down, and I may say several things. I say, hey, you need to focus on this, you need to remember this, you need to know this. And so I challenge you to write those things down and remember these things, because I believe what we're hearing this morning, I believe what I have heard and what I've prepared for this morning is not just impactful for me, but it is for all of us. And so as we dive into John chapter 11, I want us to have that idea in mind. If it's not good, God's not done. Look what it says in verse one. This is a familiar story, one you may be familiar with, and I just wanna challenge you before we dive in, just take all your um, understandings, everything you know about the story, and just kinda throw it out the window for a minute, and let's go into this as if it's the very first time you've ever heard the story. Here's what it says. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. And we understand that this is a serious sickness. You see that as we're about to read, but this, is, this isn't just kind of like a cough or a common cold, like he is ICU sick. He is near death. The bad thing about that is that he's ICU sick, but there's no ICU, there's no electricity. This is a devastating situation that we're beginning to learn about. And it says that he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse two says, this Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. If you have your Bible, you wanna underline that. It says, the one that you love. It's important that we understand his love for us in this message this morning. And so underline that, Lord, the one you love is sick. You know, when we have a legitimate problem, we take it to Jesus, don't we? I mean, isn't, isn't that kind of what we naturally do? You know, I've heard stories about people who have been in a unexpected situation and have had no prior relationship, um, really understanding of God, but in that moment they say, dear God, help me. It's what we do when we find ourselves in a desperate situation. We call on somebody who has the ability or who we think might have the ability to change the circumstances, to change the things going on in our lives. Mary and Martha are doing exactly this. When life gets desperate, we call on him. You know, I can think of some personal examples in my life in the past where I have been desperate, I have been disappointed, I have been overwhelmed by what life has brought me to. Early on in my first couple of years of high school, my mom went through some devastating physical illnesses and health complications. And it changed our family dynamic. It changed some of my responsibility. And as a, a little bit of a self-centered uh, teenager that I was, that it, it bothered me. It led me to a place where I was really overwhelmed because there were things that changed. There were expectations that changed for me and I began to ask God, why is this happening? If you're so good, then why? December of 2000, right around Christmas, I found out that my parents were divorcing. I was devastated. I was a little bit angry. I was mad at God. I was like, God, my parents are the ones that have showed me who you are, and so why is this happening? God, I just need you to do what you can do. In my desperation, I'm asking you just to make this right. I was overwhelmed. I doubted God. In July of 2008, I got a phone call that my grandfather had a brain tumor, that he had brain cancer, and it didn't look good. In my desperation, immediately I began to cry out to God and said, God, I just need you to heal him. I know you're the healer. Will you step in and do what only you can do in this situation? God's a healer. God's a good God. I believe that today. Because of that, I still continue to take my request and my overwhelming ideas and things going on in my life, and I take those to God. 
That's what Mary and Martha are doing in this situation. No ICU, no electricity. Their brother is dying. He is near death. Look what it says in verse four. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. That's good news. There's a promise there. Jesus himself, God in the flesh says, this is not going to end in death. This is not going to end the way that you think it's going to end. And then it continues on, he says, no, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. This is great news. But it's it's interesting and I think it's important for us to recognize that Jesus doesn't say, hey, this is not gonna end in death. But he doesn't continue on and say, don't worry, everything's gonna be all right, you're gonna be okay, life is gonna be easy. He says, this isn't gonna end in death, this isn't gonna end badly, but it's not just for your good, but it's so that the glory of God would be seen. That God himself would be on display in this awful situation. My interpretation of that is really kind of the focus of this morning. If it's not good, then God's not done. But it's not just for our benefit or for Lazarus's benefit, it's for the glory of himself so that he would be on display in this situation. Look what it says in verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Again, underline that, circle that, write that down. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's important for us to recognize this. I believe John puts this in here on purpose. For some of us this morning, we doubt God's love for us, and maybe that's the only thing you need to wrap your arms around this morning is this idea that God's love for you, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what's been done to you, God's love for you this morning is incredibly strong, and it always has been, and it always will be, despite what you or I could ever do. God's love is strong for us, and it's the same way for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We just find out that he loves them, that his love is strong for them, and then in verse six it says, so, so as a result of his love for them, it says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he left immediately and went to see them. It doesn't say that, but that's what I would expect it to say. If his love is strong for them, then immediately he dropped what he was doing and ran to them, but it says that he actually stayed two more days. Lazarus is sick, near death. Mary and Martha are desperately calling on Jesus, saying, Jesus, we need you to fix this situation. It's not good. Jesus' love is strong for them, so he waits. You know, I, I think about this. I'm kind of in that weird window of time between Generation X and the millennial generation. I'm right on the doorstep of being a millennial, right on the end of being Generation X. I think people are starting to call that the zennials, but here's the idea. We um, grew up with a analog childhood We didn't know all the things that were coming with technology and the internet and cell phones and now we've begun to learn those and we've begun, we were kind of the first ones to learn how to use them and in that I've seen the evolution of text text messaging take place. You know, early on, right in, as I was leaving high school in the late 90s going into 2000, I remember the, the pager became a big deal. And there was really only one text message you got with a pager, you got the phone number and if it was urgent, you got 911. And that meant you better call mom or dad right now or it's not gonna end well. Well, we've evolved evolved a little bit and then it evolved into the cell phones and you could actually send text messages. I remember my wife Brandy and I were just starting to kind of get to know each other. Text messaging was just starting to take off and to send a text message, you would basically hit the numbers one, two, or three, or maybe four times to get that letter. And so it would take forever to send a text message. 
But it was really cool to be able to do that. And then you can send pictures. And it's evolved all the way to the point where now it's just ridiculous. Now we send each other smiling pictures of poop. I mean, what, if, what, what is wrong with us? We've evolved tremendously. I think it's all for the good. But there's another thing that we do now. Our phones will tell us whether or not the person that we sent the text message to has actually read the text message. It's something called read receipts or read receipts. There's a debate on what's the proper way to say that. I say read receipts. Listen, if you have your read receipts turned off, you're shady. (laughs) And the reason that I say that is because I have mine turned off. Why? Because I don't want you to know when I've read your text messages because I may not be able to respond right away. If I send you a text message and you have your read receipts turned on and I see that you've read my text message and then hours go by and I get on Facebook and I see that you've been commenting about the HOA on your neighborhood Facebook page and you've been talking about March Madness on Twitter and you've been updating your Snapchat story that you've just been all over the place doing all these things, having all this time to do these things but you haven't responded to my text message, you have given me permission to talk bad about your mama. Like that's just what, that's how I feel. Why is that? Because when we know that somebody has heard something that we've said or they've they've understood the communication we've sent to them but they've not responded, it communicates to us that what we communicated is not important and there's no urgency in their mind. There's no regard for us in their mind. It's what's happening here with Jesus. I mean, think this is what's happening. Jesus hears this message. Him and his boys are out. The disciples are hanging out. They're healing people. They're performing miracles. I mean, it's just this amazing display of God's power. And then, you know, just like guys do, if you're gonna hang out together for a day, there's gonna be food involved. And so they, they probably go and they're, they're ending their day. They're having dinner at Chewy's and they're eating some chips and queso, some enchiladas. And if you go to Chewy's and you don't do tres leches, you're not doing it right. You need to get your life right with God. Get some tres leches in your life. I believe there will be tres leches in heaven in the abundance. And so they're, they're hanging out, they're having dinner, and this, this messenger comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, Lazarus is dying, Lazarus is sick. Now Jesus loved Lazarus, right? That's what, this, that's what the text tells us. Jesus responds with, hey, it's all good, don't worry. This isn't gonna end in death. And I think his disciples in that moment are like, oh yeah, we've seen this, this is, this is gonna be good. Jesus is gonna show up, Jesus is gonna do a miracle, Lazarus is gonna be healed, this is gonna be great. Jesus says, this isn't gonna end in death, and he goes back to eating his tres leches. He's just eating it, and they're like, his disciples are probably looking at him like, Jesus, like he's not just sick, he's about to die. So you know, like when you finish eating your cake, maybe we should go, or is that what's gonna happen? And Jesus is like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go read a book, I'm gonna go take a nap, we're gonna hang out tomorrow, and maybe even another day. I mean, this is, this is, just bizarre, but it's interesting that there was actually intent in Jesus' delay. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. It tells us that he loved them, so he waited two more days. It doesn't make sense. It It doesn't connect in our understanding what Jesus is doing. So we know that the story kind of goes on. He begins to have a conversation with them about whether or not they should go back because there's some risk for Jesus' life. There's people there that don't like him. And so they have this conversation. Ultimately, in verse 17, I find out that they've decided to go back. Jesus says, let's go. And then in verse 17, it says this. 
On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. We can all agree, that's late. Maybe one of your pet peeves is people being late to a meeting, late to work. Let's just all agree that four days is late. Four days is you're losing your job late, okay? This is, this is, this is, this is late. And the reality of this, and you even see this in the text, if you can go back and read the entire story, Jesus is communicating to his disciples, listen, he's not just asleep, he is dead. He has taken his last breath, it's over for Lazarus. As Jesus and his disciples show up on the scene in Bethany, they arrive to a hopeless situation. And I realize, because I've lived long enough to know that that's exactly where some of us today find ourselves. You find yourself in a disappointing, devastating, overwhelming situation. And in the middle of that hopelessness, you begin to struggle to believe. You struggle to trust. It's just difficult. Look what it says in verse 21. Jesus shows up. Verse 21, Martha runs to him and says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She takes a little bit of a stab at Jesus. She's probably a little bit frustrated. She's devastated. She says, if you had been here, he would not have died. Jesus begins in the conversation, continues on, and they say, he's basically saying, hey, listen, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He begins to remind her of his promises that he sent back to say, hey, this is not gonna end in death. In other words, if it's not good, I'm not done, Martha. Verse 32, you skip ahead. We see where Mary arrives on the scene. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Didn't he just hear that from Martha? Now Mary repeats the same thing. She's devastated, she's disappointed. Jesus, if you're so good, then why, why is this happening? He's, he's died, you're late. I'm frustrated with you because you didn't meet the expectations I had for you in my life. Verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. That's important to recognize. Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he asked, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then verse 35 says this, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, two words. Some of you are like, man, I really need to start memorizing my Bible. I need to know some verses. Right there's your starting point. Jesus wept. You can go home and say, hey, listen, listen, babe, listen, mom, listen, dad. I I memorized a verse today. Jesus wept. High five. Tweet it. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Look what it says in verse 38. Once more, Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Now, if you're one of Jesus' disciples in this moment, this is that moment where you're, you're all in. Like, Jesus is your, is your boy. Jesus has been blowing everybody's mind, and Jesus says, move the stone. You're like, Jesus has the audacity. What is he doing? I mean, you, you have that friend where somebody comes up to you and is like, hey, uh, do you, you're, you're friends with John, right? And you're like, Why? Like you don't respond with yes or no, you respond with why, because he's that friend that if there's a line, he's gonna always live on the other side of that line, and so you're like, well, why, why are you asking? <laughs> I'm not sure if I wanna admit that he's my friend right now. This is that moment for the disciples. Jesus is like, hey, take away the stone. Jesus has lost his mind. Je- Lazarus has been dead for four days. He has been in the tomb for four days. 
But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, ever had that conversation with God? Things aren't going the way you thought they were. You begin to understand more about his plans, purposes for your life, and the way that he wants you to, to go, the, way, the steps he wants you to take. You're like, but, but Lord, that doesn't make sense. By this time, there's a bad odor, for he has been there for days. She takes another stab at Jesus. There's, a, there's an odor. The King James Version actually says that he stinketh. All right, so next time your kid comes in the house and he smells awful or she smells bad, just be like, you stinketh and that's biblical, go take a shower. I just love that they use the word stinketh. I didn't know that that was a biblical term, but it is. She takes a stab at Jesus and she says, he stinketh, this is not a good idea, Jesus. This is a devastating, hopeless situation. Was Mary overwhelmed? Absolutely. Was Martha overwhelmed? I would guess The answer is yes. Verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus kind of looks at him and probably tilts his head and he's like, did I not tell you how this was gonna end? Hey, Peter, didn't I tweet about this four or five days ago saying how this was gonna end up? Like I talked about it on my Facebook page. I made a Facebook Live video talking about this. Did I not say that this would end differently? It's not good, and I'm not done. Jesus begins to ask the question, but sometimes it's difficult to take Jesus at his own words. I recognize that struggle, especially when life goes unexpected. I believe Mary was in a place where she decided she wanted to trust God, but the reality of the situation is the tomb is full. Her brother's been dead for four days. There's no hope. Verse 41. So they took the stone away. Stop right there. Who's they? Who's they? I think they are the ones who took Jesus at his word. They were the ones who remembered that there was this time, they were at this wedding celebration, and Jesus took 180 gallons of water and he turned it into wine. They were the people who were maybe hanging out with this huge crowd of people following Jesus, listening to his teachings, and then they were hungry one day, and this little boy walks up with a Happy Meal, and he's like, hey, Jesus, this might feed everybody, and they see Jesus feed 20,000 people with a little bit of food. That's who I think they were. They were the people that when the disciples were out on a boat, they saw him hanging out on the water, and then they see Jesus just walking. Doesn't need a boat. They were the ones who knew that Jesus had healed a man from leprosy. They were the ones who knew that Jesus had made a blind man see. They had seen the glory of God. They had seen the work of God. And because they had seen it and they had experienced it, they trusted him when he said, move the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Highlight that, circle that, underline that. It's a significant portion of a progression that's taking place. He yells at Lazarus and says, come out. Now why did you say Lazarus? Scholars believe that if he had just said, hey, come out, dead people are walking everywhere. It's like the opening scene of dead man walking or dead, the, the walking dead. Obviously, I don't watch the show. But it's this bizarre scene. He specifically says, Lazarus, come out. I mean, how ridiculous does Jesus look in this moment? 
Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. He moves the stone and then he yells at Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44, the dead man came out. I mean, I imagine the scene. Everybody's standing around, they're like, dude, this guy has lost his mind. They're like, Jesus, what is he doing? Oh, shoot. It says that the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Translation, if it's not good, God's not done. Did it happen the way that Mary and Martha intended that it would happen or expected it to happen? No, were they caught in an overwhelming situation? Absolutely. Did they doubt God's goodness? I I believe they probably did. Jesus shows up and he does what only he can do. And it's not just to make their life better, but it's so that the glory of God would be on display. What's my point this morning? Was Lazarus getting sick good? Absolutely not. Was Mary and Martha being overwhelmed and devastated in the situation good? No, I don't, I don't feel good about that. And sometimes in our, in our not knowing what to say in those situations, we just say somebody, hey, listen, God's good, God's got a plan for this, but that's not good. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. Was Jesus being late good? No. Was Lazarus dying good? No. But all of these things worked together for the good of those he loved. And I think it's an important reminder for us today that Jesus conquers all things, including death, which means when we find ourselves in an overwhelming situation, when life takes an unexpected turn and we begin to doubt God's goodness, we can see in this passage that God is good and that I can trust him. And I begin to think back on my own life and I begin to think about the things that I've experienced. And was my mom struggling physically with her health while I was in high school a good thing? No. Was the divorce of my parents and the breakup of our family a good, healthy thing for anybody in the family? No. Was my grandfather dying six months after his diagnosis and passing away? Good, no. Recently, my wife received a very early diagnosis of cancer. Was that good for us? No. In all those situations, I was incredibly overwhelmed, calling on God, asking God to show himself, to to make the situation right. And God never made the situation exactly what I wanted, but in every situation, I can look back as a 37-year-old man and see that God was at work in every single circumstance to make himself known, to put himself on display, to catch the attention of those he loved to know that he was for them and that he has good things for them. My grandfather never would have trusted Jesus as his Lord without the diagnosis because in his mind, he was in control and it took a diagnosis for him to recognize that he didn't really have control and he had to surrender his control over to a God who loved him and sent Jesus on his behalf. It was a life-changing diagnosis for my grandfather, but it didn't start off good, but God wasn't done. And so I don't know where this lands for you. Maybe you find yourself in a situation where life's not good, life's overwhelming. You find yourself stuck in some pretty overwhelming circumstances. But I wanna point out something really quick. In verse 35, I said to highlight, circle these things, but in verse 35, this is where I find my confidence. Because I go through seasons even recently, where I began to doubt God's goodness, God's love for me, God's plan for me in my life and my family. But I look at verse 35 and it says that Jesus wept. Now isn't that strange? 
Jesus wept. I mean, think about this. Jesus has two things in this situation that you and I don't have and never will have. He has understanding of what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what the final outcome's gonna be, yet he's crying. He also has the power to change the circumstance, and yet he finds himself overwhelmed with emotion, crying. Why? Because he's deeply concerned for those he loves. He's deeply concerned for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he's overwhelmed with emotion because what matters to them matters to him. And so a result of that is what we see in verse 33 and verse 38 where it says that he's deeply moved. What does that mean? The actual translation of the original Greek in this passage is that he snorted with anger. Now I don't know what a good word is in English for that, but I can kind of picture that, that he was in this moment where it's like, hey, you've messed with somebody I care about and nobody messes with somebody I care about. For some of you, you felt this when I said something about maybe saying bad things about your mama a little bit ago. That's the feeling you felt. You're like, oh, no, he didn't. This is, this is where the bell rings and you go to battle for nine rounds, for 12 rounds, for however many rounds. This is where you, the horse starts pawing its feet at the ground as it's about to go into battle. This is an aggressive move. They've been moved. He's been moved because he is so in love with us. And then in verse 43, it says, Lazarus come out, exclamation mark. Jesus shouts at death because he has power over death. And death will not hold down those he loves because he gave his life to conquer it. So death has no victory in yours and mine's lives as we begin to place our faith in Jesus, as we believe that he is good and that we can trust him. And so when you find yourself in a place where you're overwhelmed, you're disappointed, you're frustrated, you even begin to doubt God, I believe that we can find confidence when we realize that he is good and we can trust him and believe that if it's not good, he's not done. And maybe you've been in church for a long time. Maybe for some this is just fresh and new and you're, you're, you're wrapping your mind around this, but I know for some, and this is where I find myself at times, with all the understanding, all the knowledge, reading my Bible, listening to sermons, growing up in church, I still find myself in this place. And so I have to go through this exercise sometimes, and maybe this is where you need to go today. I begin to ask the question, what would my life look like without Jesus? What would my life look like without Jesus? Begin to reflect back on your bloodline. Begin to look back at your family, at past experience. Where has Jesus made a difference? And maybe you're like, man, he's never made a difference because I've never really trusted him. You know, as I look back in my life, I can see the work of Jesus in my life, I can see the difference that he's made in my marriage. Because listen, if it had just been me and trusting myself, my marriage would be a disaster. I've seen him work in my relationship between me and my kids and, and friendships and the way that I work and, and, and all these different areas of my life. But the opposite is true too. Every regret, every pain that I've caused myself has been a result of me not trusting Jesus in an area of my life. Nobody has caused more regret in my life than myself. And it's always been where I said, Jesus, I think I got this. I'm gonna do what I feel like I need to do rather than trust you and believe that what you have for me is good. If it's not good, God's not done. But God is good and I can trust him.